0: Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we could come this morning and be in your presence. We thank you for the blessing, blessedness, Lord, of each Sunday, being able to, to just recall the things that not only you have done in our lives, but the things you are doing and even of the glorious things that we look forward to one day as we uh, spend eternity with you in heaven. And we pray now, Lord, as we, we meditate upon this new life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. Uh, God, that you would open our eyes. Uh, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to worship and to praise you for the things that you are doing, that you would give us confidence to rest in the promises that you give to us. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we just pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be looking at at Romans uh, chapter 8. Uh, but today is when the church celebrates Palm Sunday. You know that day, kids. You probably heard this in Sunday school, or at least at some point in your life, about how Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, uh, in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that that He is the Messiah or He is the King of of Israel. And as he came into Jerusalem, the people took the palm branches and, and they would wave them, and, and uh, some would take off their coats and, and lay them down as, as they came, and they shouted, "Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna!" in the highest." But by the end of the week, uh, the same people stood before Pilate. There was a crowd that stood before Pilate, and there was Jesus. Only this time Jesus was on trial. And Pilate said, I, I can't find anything wrong with him. What do you want me to do with him? And and the people shouted, instead of saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they said, let him be crucified. And we know that Jesus was nailed to a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for the sins of those who would have faith in him. And that's what we've been looking at over these last couple of weeks, that Jesus came to earth specifically To be our substitute to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. And there's probably no book that talks about that in more depth than the book of Romans. I mean, even from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter uh, 3, verse 20, uh, Paul makes it very clear of our need of salvation because of our sin. Uh, Then in chapters 3 through 5, he clearly explains the way of salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ but then in chapter 6 he turns to speak of the new life that we have in Christ that our identification with Christ now means that our our old self that is our flesh that which we were before becoming a follower of Christ was crucified with Christ so that sin is now no longer our master uh, yes we are still tempted to sin yes we do still struggle at times and we do sin But sin no longer controls us. Now that we are set free to obey Christ and we are no longer a slave to sin but to to God. So the effect that Christ's substitution has on us is something that's not just in the past in terms of the payment for our sin but also in the present. To change who rules our lives. Uh, Not sin any longer but God And therefore, who we obey. And that's what I want us to look at this morning is that transformation that takes place in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ because of Christ's penal substitution of Him taking the payment for our sin. And I want us to just see a couple of things this morning. First of all, that that transformation does not come through the law. It does not come merely through our obedience. Um... Look, in verse 2, uh, Paul speaks of being in bondage to sin and death. And then he says in verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. You see, uh, if you think about Paul in writing to especially his uh, Jewish audience, he, he would want them to understand that uh, kids, uh, the Jews were a lot like you guys. That they grew up in the covenant community and they heard the preaching of the word of God. They went to school and when they were in school they didn't just learn about the world in which they lived but they learned about God and he was the center of all that. And so they grew up hearing these things and they were challenged to obey the Torah, the law and to do the things that were said, and it could very easily it could very easily be mistaken to think that all I have to do to be a good Jewish boy or a good J- Jewish girl was just to do what God says, and if I did that, then God would love me and the th- same thing with you kids too as well. you could easily think that if I come to Sunday school and I come to church and I do the things that my parents tell me to do, then God is going to love me more. Or it's not just kids. I mean, it could be youth. It could be adults as well. We can think of as, as adults, if I just go to church and I put in my time on Sunday morning, then therefore I'm acceptable before God. During the week I can do whatever I want, but on Sunday morning I'm going to do what God wants. And so therefore I am somehow acceptable to God. But, but Paul's point is that the change that we need in our life and our status with God will not come through mere obedience to the law of God because of this thing called the flesh. Uh, he talks about how the law was weakened by the flesh. Now, when he's talking about flesh, he's not talking about this, you know, flesh and bones. He's not talking about the body. He means the whole of our fallen human nature. and And obeying God's law alone could never bring us from freedom, from sin, because our, our flesh, that fallen human nature rejects the law. Um, when we're told, do this or, or don't do this, what do we want to do? We want to do it, or we don't want to do it, right? If I said to you, I'm going next Sunday, we're going to install or next this week we're going to install a little red button over there on the wall, and whatever you do, kids, do not touch that red button, okay? Don't touch that red button. And even you adults, don't touch that red button. What do you want to do? You want to go touch that red button, don't you? Because that's what the flesh does. The flesh is, it makes our desire to disobey God even even greater. And this means that we can't come to God upon our terms because of the flesh. And so, you know, we can't come to the Lord... Uh, saying that we're going to keep some laws that are going to make us look good, that are going to make us look acceptable in God's covenant community, but really we want to uh, satisfy our flesh. You know, that's not that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a spiritual do-it-yourself kit where you just sort of make your life a, a little bit better. That's not what the Bible or the gospel is all about. And so, my friend, if you are not a Christian... Uh, I want you to think about your life and the change that happens in your life. What would you say has been the best change that you have had in your life? It may be a new job or maybe a new school that you went to or a new home. Maybe it's a new relationship. Maybe it's a new diet. I don't know. Um, Or a, a new way of thinking. Maybe you read something that just really transformed the way you're thinking. But what is the best change you've ever experienced? And my guess is is that even with that change, you still find yourself disappointed in your expectations that your life is still not exactly what you thought it would be Is, is that the case and have you ever wondered why that is the case and And, and what do you do with your, the knowledge of your moral failures as well? You see, Christianity is not a spiritual resource center to help you make a better life, or a perfect life for yourself, or to build a paradise here upon this world. And and unfortunately, there are churches who actually preach that, that talk about, you know, really what you're wanting to do here and what the gospel helps you to do is just to make your life better. But as Christians, we understand that Jesus Christ and his power are the only things that can finally change us. And change our lives and change this world. And that's why we must come to grips with our spiritual helplessness. We must realize that our salvation must come from outside of ourselves. That it's not something that we can do. You cannot save yourself. And I want to ask even those of us who are believers here this morning, Christian brothers and sisters, do you understand that you have not obeyed yourself into God's good graces. Do you understand that? That it doesn't work like that. What you need is God's transforming power to set you free. And that once you have been set free from the bondage of sin, then, and only then, can you obey God as He gives you that power and that ability to do so every day. And the reason why I bring that up is because of what Paul is talking about in Romans 7 and Romans chapter 8. You know, you may be here today and Satan may be accusing you. You may have even wondered whether you should have come to church this morning because of the guilt that you feel for the sin that you've committed this week. Maybe it's a sin that you have wrestled with and you've fallen back into it again and Satan is accusing you and you question your relationship with God and Christ's penal substitution, because you've fallen so far, far short in obeying God, and you somehow think that that affects your worthiness to be called a Christian. But you did not—you did not uh, come to a relationship with God through your obedience, and therefore you don't lose that relationship with God through your disobedience as well, even though Satan may be seeking to accuse you and to condemn you for the sin that you have. And as I said earlier, as Christians, we understand that Jesus Christ and his power are the only things that can finally change us in our lives in this world. And that's why we must come to grips with our utter spiritual helplessness. And nothing changes as we walk with the Lord each day. Brothers and sisters, when you got up this morning, it is important that you understand your utter spiritual helplessness. And that when you get up tomorrow, that you understand your utter spiritual helplessness. And as you get up the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and the next year, that you understand your utter spiritual helplessness. And so that each day, as you get up, You look to Jesus Christ as your substitute who has paid the price so that you might have a relationship with God. But not only can you not save yourself, but you cannot save others. And you might say, well, I understand that. But isn't it sometimes tempting to think that? That Especially if you have family members, maybe parents or siblings or kids who are not walking with the Lord, you want to do whatever you can. And and you're trying to manipulate circumstances and you're trying to, you know, do things to, to help them to see their need of Christ. And you cannot save yourselves and so therefore you cannot save others. You can lift them up before the Lord and you can pray for them. And you can pray that God might be gracious to grant them repentance that leads to eternal life. But there's nothing that we can do. And we cannot grow in Christ simply by learning new things but we, uh, but only as we have a new heart. And so we see here that that's the problem with trying to come to God by keeping his law, is that we have the flesh, which keeps us from obeying that law. And so really we need a new heart. And so we are not only not transformed by the law or by our obedience, but we are transformed by what God has done. And I want us to see several things that that he has done in this passage. First of all, we see in verse 1 that our penalty is paid and we are justified. That our penalty is paid and we are justified. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To really appreciate what Paul says here, we need to realize and remind ourselves that we have... That we owe our whole lives to God. And yet, we all by nature and even by choice have spent our lives for ourselves. We have sinned against God. And because God is fair and just and good, he is committed to punish us for our sin. And that means even that final uh, condemnation as we stand before him in judgment. But Paul says, now there is no condemnation. The now that he's referencing here is the fact of the coming of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. Now that Christ has died for you, now that you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. The charges against us have been dropped because Jesus Christ has been condemned in our place. Now, whose penalty did he pay for? It says those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus means to believe in Him. We know that. It is to have faith in Him, to trust Him. As Paul wrote to the Galatians, in Galatians 2, verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, that is, here again, through their obedience, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But such faith is not just a belief in some facts, but it is faith that changes one's heart. And that's why Paul says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 6, verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, a life of a person um, that is a believer in Jesus Christ is a, is a person at war with sin. His, his heart upheld by the Spirit of God as he seeks day by day to put sin to death in his thoughts, in his words, in his deeds. It is a life of grace in which Jesus has, by his Spirit, taken up residence in the believer's heart. And so we are sanctified in his grace and that we live in Jesus Christ. And not only in our own lives, uh, but, but Paul even goes on in Romans, in chapter 12 to tell us, that being a christian means belonging to one another he says so we though many are one body in christ and individually members of one another and so we see that he has died for those who believe in him because we will only come to believe in him if he has died for us my non-christian friend so what does that mean for you it means that you were laid open and liable to god condemning you for your sins. In fact, even now, your sins call out to God for justice to take vengeance against you for your sins. And now, that may sound sort of extreme, and you may think, well, Pastor Rick, I'm not really all that bad. But God's not tied to our low standards of what sin is, He is perfectly just, He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. And as we sinned against him, then we are held accountable for that sin. But for the Christian, friend, I want to remind you that Jesus has been our ransom and our justifier. And that we need to come this morning and to rejoice in the fact that you are in Jesus Christ, that you have no condemnation Now, brothers and sisters, we need to relish that fact. We need to relish that. We need to rejoice in that. If you can learn to rejoice in that fact, it will do more good than learning a hundred evangelistic gospel presentations. Okay? Because if you understand that you have no condemnation in Jesus Christ and what God has done, He has done, and it has been accomplished, then you're not going to have to memorize some gospel presentation. People can't Keep you from telling other people about how great your God is and what Jesus Christ has done. And so we must praise God for the joy that our penalty has been laid upon Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, put your worries up against the magnitude of this certainty that we have as Christians. That there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And rejoice knowing that your penalty is paid in Christ. And that there is no condemnation. No condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Jesus Christ. But not only is he our justifier, but our bondage is broken as well, and we are set free. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the two laws that are mentioned here could be referring to God's law as it brings life to some and death to others, or... Uh, Paul could be referring to a principle or or a way of life. But either way, the spirit and sin both pull at us in different directions. One pulls us to self-centeredness, that is, the law of sin and death. But then the law of the spirit pulls us to a God-centeredness in in our lives. And it is the spirit's work that results in, in freedom and in life it is the Holy Spirit that liberates us from the bondage of sin and death. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may be thinking that, you know, I have a lot of Christian friends, or I have some Christian friends at least. And they don't look very liberated to me. And, and part of that may be your definition of freedom. Because I think oftentimes when we think of freedom, we think of doing what you want to do without any restraint. That's freedom. And the definition, it seems like, of the world in which we live. So we ought to be able to do whatever it is we want. But is that true, freedom? You see, the reason that God made you, the reason that you and I are alive, is to know God as our Lord and our Heavenly Father, to be uh, drawn to find true purpose of life, to know and adore and to love God. Um, as we were created to do, so that 's the freedom that the Bible talks about is to understand the purpose in which we were made now, I know this is a really sort of a ridiculous illustration, but for, uh, maybe to get the point across okay if freedom means doing what you want to do, then anyone is free to use a piano as a vacuum cleaner and a vacuum cleaner as a piano okay but but let me suggest to you. That true freedom is understanding how to use a piano as a piano and a vacuum cleaner as a vacuum cleaner. That as we understand who we are and the purpose that God has created us and we live that way as the Spirit of God works and changes our hearts, then that is true freedom. Christian brothers and sisters, uh, I pray that the Lord would help you to 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 open your eyes to those around you who do who are in bondage to sin, who do not who mistakenly think that freedom is just being able to do whatever you want. And as they live that way, they find themselves in more and more and more bondage. They find themselves overwhelmed by the things of the world, and they don't understand why their relationships are broken and why financially they're they're struggling, or 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 maybe they're very successful. Maybe they're even very wealthy and they're very smart. But they're very empty and they're very hollow because they really don't know what true freedom is. And may the Lord so lay it upon your heart to be gracious to these people to go and to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ that they might know true freedom and that they might be set free. And also, I would say, believer, also remember to praise God for delivering you from the bondage of sin, from things that have kept you trapped. Now, I know that I'm not saying that any of us are without sin. But there's a difference between falling into sin and another thing of being bound in sin and in the bondage of sin. And as Christians we have been set free. So have you thought about this? What kind of specific bondages to sin have you experienced and how has Christ set you free? And have you shared that with others? Have you encouraged others? When was the last time that you recounted some specific goodness of God to you to another Christian? To help them to see that you have been set free from the bondage of sin. Um, Brothers and sisters, we know what it means to be in bondage to sin and death. And then to be released by Jesus Christ. I love what one person said. They said that uh, as a church, as we gather together, we are a meeting of former slaves. I'll just let that sink in just a minute. We are a meeting of former slaves. Uh, of those who were enslaved by sin and death and who have been brought together by the liberation of Jesus Christ. And that forms a bond and a joy that others can only imagine that we have had our bondage broken and we now walk in freedom in Christ. But third, I want us to see that sin is condemned by God substituting His Son Now, we see that in verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a whole, this is like a gold mine. Then it would take a lot of time to mine all and display all the, the riches that, that are here. And, 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 and much of this we've even actually talked about over the last several weeks. So let me just note several things that I want us to notice from this passage. First of all, that the law could not change our sinful hearts, but what the law was powerless to do, God has done. Don't miss that. God has done. It's not God will do it if you're good enough or God will do it if you obey him just the right way. God has done it. It is finished. That's why Jesus said it is finished upon the cross. The father sent his son to take on human flesh and blood and bones. See what he says. He goes, God has done it What the law weak by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus had to identify with us and so therefore he became incarnate. And so he was like us in every way except he did not sin. Now, you know, we've oftentimes heard the phrase to err is what? Human. But to forgive is divine, right? Right. And I think sometimes we can think that way as Christians, and we can get confused and think that sin is essentially, truly a part of who we are in our human nature. But that's not true. Adam and Eve existed before there was sin, and, and even for us as Christians, if you're a Christian, you will exist after sin. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that you in your life will outlast sin, now, isn't that a wonderful and wild thought to, to have? That Christ not only died to pay the penalty in our sin in the past, and He has died so that we might be freed from the power of sin in the future so we now can obey God. But one day, we will see that He has died um, so that we might not even have the presence of sin in our lives. That we will, that, that there will be a you without sin Because he who came to earth sinless became sin for you so that you would be without sin. Amen. Amen. That is wonderful. The father sent his son uh, not only to be incarnate, but also as a sacrifice. We see that by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now that phrase, and for sin... It's really an idiom that is referred to and used this phrase. is used in the Old Testament to refer to sin offerings. And so Christ has become that sin offering that was given to condemn sin in the flesh so that we would no longer be condemned, but also that the law might be fulfilled. You see that here that by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Brothers and sisters, though the righteousness of the law is not fulfilled by us, we know that we don't fulfill the law of righteousness perfectly, do we not? We still sin. Paul talks about that in Romans 6 and 7. We still sin. We struggle with sin. So the righteousness of the law is not fulfilled by us, and yet, praise God, it is fulfilled in those who live according to the Spirit, that Christ's death has has fulfilled that perfect law. Now, what does it mean to, to live according to the Spirit? Well, Paul is describing those who, as hearts, have been changed by the Holy Spirit and now have a different orientation, who act from spiritual and not from carnal principles. I like the way that Jeremy uh, Walker describes it. He he talks about a closer walk with God or or living according to the Spirit. And and he describes it this way. He says, When a person lives according to the Spirit, they're quick quick to repent of any known sin to cultivate a sensitive conscience that is always ready to be directed back to the Word and by the Word into paths of righteousness and peace. A close walk with God Requires the pursuit of a way of living that does not grieve the Spirit of God. And that's what David talks about in Psalm 51. He has sinned and sinned awfully, grieving the Spirit of God. He now confesses that without that Spirit upholding and sustaining and directing and governing and enabling him to live a life of increasing godliness. He cannot begin to teach transgressors God's way because what he says would clash with what he is himself. And do we ever feel wretched failures as times? Do we return like a dog to his vomit, running back to the sins that we thought and hoped had long been overcome? Do we do vile thoughts and wicked words and cruel deeds still spill out of us? Yes, And those who live according to the Spirit mourns over such evidence of a sinful heart before God and men. But he demonstrates the vibrant realities of grace by going again to the fountain open for sin and for uncleanness and by renewing his vows of willing obedience at the foot of the cross. It is hypocrisy to make grace a mere shelter for sin, But it is a reality to take our sins daily, even hourly, to the cross of Jesus and nail them there with Him and walk away with our conscience cleansed, our joys restored, and our duty clear. Such a person can and should speak of his Savior. He has a story of grace to tell. Is that where you're at this morning? Is that where you're at this morning? God dealt with sin personally by sending His Son, fully God and fully man, to restore our relationship with Him. And though we uh, are constantly battling with sin, we must remember that sin has been condemned, that our penalty has been paid, and our bondage broken, and we live a new life in Jesus Christ. We live a life that looks different. I like the way that William Arnold put it. He said the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes a part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that someone who is unconverted... Someone who doesn't walk with the Lord. It could be a very religious person. It could be a person who comes to church every Sunday and sits right beside you in church. They take sides with their cherished sin against a despised God. They say, I love my sin, and God, I want to follow Him, and I want to have a relationship with Him, but only to the extent that it allows me to hang on and to cherish my sin. That is the unconverted soul, but the converted person is the one who takes sides with his reconciled God against his hated sin. He sees the sin of his heart. He, see, even though he struggles with it and sometimes gives into that sin, he sees it as a hated thing. And even as he has uh, committed that sin he recognizes the awfulness of that and he asks God forgiveness and he trusts once again in the penal substitution of Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty of that sin and given him a relationship with God and continues to sustain him in God and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So where are you? Which side are you on? Those who have been set free by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, live by the Spirit. And if God is so worked in your heart to trust in Him, then rejoice that you have a Savior. Rejoice in what God has done for you. But if you do not know Him, He is calling you today to place your trust and your faith in Him, to come to Him, and He will set you free. Let's bow our heads this morning as we meditate upon these things preached this morning. Lord, we thank you so much to once again hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to to think about these things much, to, as I said earlier, to relish these things. And God, this week, may we meditate much upon the things that you have done for us. And may it it cause us not only to rejoice, and Lord, may you stir our hearts to praise you for the things that that we know that you have done and promised. But we pray, God, that it would compel us to tell others about you as well. Uh, Father, I pray, especially for those that may be struggling with their sin and may feel the weight of that condemnation of Satan. Uh, Lord, may they trust in your promises to know that you are true. God, that the things that you have done, you have done, you have accomplished. And may they rest upon those promises, knowing that you are true. May they look to you in their utter spiritual helplessness uh, as, as their strength and the one who gives them the ability to walk in obedience to you and out of the bondage of sin. Uh, Lord, I do pray especially, Lord, though, for those who here today that may not know you, that your spirit would take these words. and uh, May they not just be human words, but words of life. And may you bring these words to bear upon their soul, that they would turn to you, Lord, and know life eternal that is found only in you. Uh, we thank you, O oh Lord, and praise you that your spirit is truly at work in our midst, that the things that we do are of a spiritual nature. And God, may that be evidence in us as we continue to grow and to trust in you. We thank you and pray these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.